Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Get in touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Tech Stuff. My name is Chris Paulette, and I am an editor at HowStuffWorks.com. Sitting across from me, or maybe he's not, or maybe all of the above, is senior writer Jonathan Strickland. Darling, you've got to let me know. Should I stay or should I go? <laughs> Excellent. Thank you. So today we wanted to tackle an incredibly complex subject, which is uh, quantum computers. We've talked a little bit about quantum computers in previous podcasts, but we haven't really dedicated a full episode to it. And part of that is because it scares us. Yeah, and you'll probably see why as soon as we get further into the discussion today. Yeah, the 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 potential for quantum computers is phenomenal. Yes. It it potentially could be a true breakthrough in computing for certain applications. Uh but the actually describing what a quantum computer does and how it works is uh, a, a pretty Herculean task for for the layman. And this is where Chris and I both say neither of us are quantum physicists. Uh, we are not uh, experts in quantum mechanics by any stretch of the imagination. No. So, Although I do know that they used to work on VW uh, mid-sized sedans in the 80s. It wasn't mid-sized sedans. It was quantum-sized sedans. True. Yeah, because it doesn't work on the classical system. Um <laughs> We're going to get into that, actually. See, to really understand how a quantum computer works, you have to know a little bit about quantum mechanics. And this is a crazy kind of world for those of us who are uh, accustomed to things working on the classical level. Yes. So for to, to kind of ease into this, for me, physics was an easy class in general. I, I was able to grasp the concepts of physics pretty quickly, and the reason I uh, – I give to that is because I am a fairly observant person and physics really was just a way of explaining why the things I see work the way they work. Yeah, I, I, I didn't split off on that vector uh, very easily <laughs> myself. Um, you know, I think I think my interests in high school when I took physics were not <laughs> where they where they would have been now. Right. Uh, maybe I should go back through it. But, but. Well, physics, though, ultimately, I mean, once you get past the equations and the formulas, mm-hmm. once you get past that that barrier, that mathematical barrier that exists for some of us. I mean, I know there are math whizzes out there that they they see mathematics as a beautiful expression of the universe, which is phenomenal to me. It's just that doesn't come naturally to me. Yeah. However, the concepts behind it made perfect sense to me because it described the world I live in. Oh, sure. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So so I'm like, well, oh, of course, you know, the deceleration from gravity makes sense because of this. I mean, I, I could observe that and and draw conclusions from it. And in fact, mm-hmm. that's where physics comes comes from are these observations of the universe trying to make uh, explanations for those observations and predictions based on those observations and testing that out over time to make sure that they are relevant and and accurate right i mean that's that was the basis of that science well right i mean it's easy for you to you know shove a book off the table and watch it hit the floor and be able to explain that because that's something that you can see. But quantum mechanics is not something that you can see. Exactly. Quantum mechanics deals with elements that are on the atomic or subatomic scale. So we're talking about 
things that are so tiny that it is very difficult to observe them in any classical sense. Uh, you can you can observe some quantum effects uh, using a classical system, but there are complications that will get into in a second. But on the quantum level, things behave in a really weird, funky way, and we don't fully understand all of the uh, the the aspects of quantum mechanics. And when I say we, I'm talking about people. super, yeah, super smart people who make it their livelihood to study and try to understand quantum mechanics. We know bits and pieces. We don't know if there is an overall system that everything fits neatly into place. Mm-hmm. We, we hope there is so that we can explain everything, but we can't know that yet. We just mm-hmm. don't have, you know, it's kind of like you've been given uh, five or six little tiny, tiny pieces of a puzzle, and you can't really be sure that they're all belonging to the same picture, and you're trying to put the picture together just based on those little tiny pieces. Right, right. Well, and the analogy holds for classical computers. It's hard to think of computers as being classical, but in, in this sense, yeah. classical computers versus quantum computers, because um, when you talk about the computers that we use every day, laptops, desktops, uh, other kinds of computers, uh, we're talking about things that are fairly standard now. I mean, we use materials like uh, silicon and mercury and lead and and glass and mm-hmm. all sorts of other things that we are pretty familiar with. We know how the properties work. Now we have the semiconductors and transistors. You know, the, these things are, are pretty common. I yeah. mean, com- basically, you know, computer science, as far as the hardware and software goes, and this also does apply to programming. We'll get into that in a few minutes. But, um, you know, the- these things are fairly standard to the point where, you know, the layman is pretty familiar with the guts of a computer. But quantum computers use materials that we don't use in classical computers at all. And not only that, but in a system that is really complex to the sen- in the sense of you have to you have to isolate the computing elements from the overall system because if you don't the computer breaks down mm-hmm. um but to understand that we need to talk about some of the the uh features of the quantum mechanics world mm-hmm. now, one of those is the wave particle duality concept right which is that certain elements certain Things behave as both a wave and a particle. Yes. And the classic experiment to demonstrate this is called the double slit experiment. Now, this is an experiment where you have a thin sheet of material. Mm -hmm. And in that thin sheet of material, you cut two vertical slits that are close together. Right. All right. And then behind the thin sheet of material, you've got a a wall, essentially a target. Mm -hmm. You start to fire particles at this sheet of material that has these two slits and detect where they hit on the uh, on the target. Now, if you were to shine light at this uh, at this double slitted uh, material, you would observe on the other side uh, some some little bands of light where the light's passing through the slits. Right. Mm-hmm. And the bands would have little dark sections between them. Uh, or within them even, which would show where the t- the waves of light are interfering with one another. Right. All right. So that then, makes sense. So you see the interference pattern uh, from light, and that's because light behaves at least in part like a wave. It can also behave as a particle, but we'll get into that. 
So that's the wave behavior of, of light. You see that those interference patterns. Um, now let's say instead of light, you're firing electrons okay. at these double slits. Now, presumably you've got something on that wall that's going to detect where the electron hits mm-hmm. after as an individual uh, shot of an electron going through those double slits, you'll just see that it appears on one specific spot. Right. All right. So you're like, oh, well, here's where the electron landed. Uh, after you've done repeated shots of electrons through those double slits over and over and over again, the interesting thing is when you look at the accumulation of those spots, they're going to fall within that same sort of uh, uh, pattern as the light did right. when the waveforms were uh, interfering with one another. So you're going to see those dark bands appear showing that somehow the electron is behaving both as a particle and a wave, meaning that every time you fire an electron at that double-slitted material, the electron is somehow passing through each of those slits because it's only if – there's an interference that those bands are going to appear. Otherwise, you wouldn't expect to see the bands, like the, the, the dark bands within the, the, the collision area. You wouldn't expect to see those appear at all. Otherwise, it would just be a continuous line within wherever the, the double slits would allow the electron to hit. Mm-hmm. That means that somehow the electron is in two places at one time and it's only, you know, it's doing that while it's moving through, but by the time it hits, when you look at it, it's clear that it's, it had to be in one space because there's only one impact point per electron. Now, this is insane to someone who's looking at this on the classical level. How, how can something be in two places at the same time and yet ultimately be in one place at the end of it? Now would be a good time to pause the podcast and take some uh, headache reliever medicine. Yeah, because it's going to get weirder from here on out. Yes. All right. So there were people who had just being some, proactive. There's some people who had some problems with this idea of of the the wave particle duality mm-hmm. uh, of this this idea of not just that something can behave as both a wave and a particle, but that it could somehow be in two places at one time. Uh, Einstein had some issues with this um, and created some thought experiments. Hmm. Uh, but there's an uh, and 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 then there were there's a related uh, concept at least related within quantum mechanics, called entanglement. Yes. Which is, this is also pretty complex, but the idea essentially is that, let's say you've got a particle and it has a certain number of states it can exist in. In other words, there's some sort of feature or behavior this particle can have or not have, and that that's one way of describing this particle. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, we'll go with electrons and say that this electron could have one of two different spins. Right. So it could be spinning up or it could be spinning down. Okay. Now, uh, within quantum mechanics, another, yet another, uh, uh, concept is called superposition. Yes. Superposition describes a, a system's ability to, to occupy multiple states at one time. Like there's no way to determine until you measure it which state it's in. So therefore it's in all of those states at the same time. And the best part is if you observe this, you will affect what's actually happening. Yes. It, it, 
it goes through decoherence. It decoheres, mm-hmm. which means that the quantum state collapses and it becomes a classic system, not a quantum system, mm-hmm. uh, at, at least to the observer, which means that uh, – so. You have this electron that could be either spinning up or spinning down. From a quantum level, we would say it's doing both, both at the same time. Right. Which is Because it's a superposition. It's a superposition, right. Mathematically, if we were to describe the system, we would have to say it's doing both because we cannot determine at this time which one it is. Mm-hmm. Um, and it behaves as if it's doing both in, in multiple uh, experiments. So – Entanglement means that you could have another particle interact with that first one, mm-hmm. and then its behavior is dependent – or their behaviors are dependent upon each other. Right. So in the classic sense of the electron spinning up, you might have a second electron that you introduce into the system, and it's always going to spin down if the other one's spinning up and right. vice versa. Right. Now, again, if you haven't measured it yet, you cannot be certain – which what electrons are doing what? So both electrons are acting in superposition. They're both spinning up and down. They're, that's what they're doing. They're mm-hmm. spinning up and down. And it's only when you measure one that you determine that you, that the system collapses and you see. All right, it's spinning up. Well, by knowing that that spent that electron is spinning up, you then know the other electron, which has uh, entangled with the first one, is spinning down. And you don't have to. Mess with it. To you don't find have that to out. measure it. If you do measure it, you'd realize it's spinning down. Right. So you've already determined the measurement by measuring the first one. Uh, now, this Einstein also had a big problem with because entanglement is uh, – there are certain types of entanglement that are have non-locality. So locality is talking about how close these things are to one another. Mm-hmm. If you have a system that where you've got entangled particles that are non-local mm-hmm. – it means that it doesn't matter how far apart those two particles are. They're going to behave this way so that if you measure one, you know the other one. Mm-hmm. This, in theory, gives us the ability to communicate over huge distances um, if we're able to manipulate this in such a way so that uh, the information – like you know the information uh, that exists in another location no matter how far away it is. Like even if it's on the other side of the universe, you instantly know – the state of that particle. That means that you, you, the information has traveled faster than the speed of light. That's the problem Einstein had because nothing travels faster than the speed of light except possibly information. So if I've got a system here on Earth and there's another system across the universe, perhaps set to a Beatles tune, uh, felt that one coming. I can, I can, and, and my system is entangled with that system. By, by observing and measuring my system, I now know the state of the other system across the universe without having to be there to measure it. And, and this is, again, kind of crazy for anyone who's thinking up from a classical point of view because it's, that's just not the way stuff appears to work to us on the macro level. Now, I wish I had remembered my Pain reliever medication. I do, however, uh, hope to avoid any imperial entanglements. <laughs> nice. nice. Thank you. Thank you. Made the Kessel run in 12 parsecs. <laughs> it's fast enough for you, old man. <laughs> um, so, yeah. So quantum computers rely on this idea. On, on multiple ideas. Yes, superposition ideas. and entanglement. In particular, and uh, and just another aside. I know we've done a lot of, of prep works here and asides, but it's it is really important to kind of get that 
that information about quantum mechanics across. Um, you may have heard of a thought experiment called Schrodinger's cat. Chris actually yes. alluded to it earlier in the podcast. Yeah. Schrodinger's cat was an, uh, well, Schrodinger was using this as a thought experiment to kind of show the absurdity of the quantum world compared to the classical world. Mm-hmm. Um, and it wasn't necessarily to, ever state that such a, an experiment is, uh, should be carried out, but rather just that it shows how, how, how insane to us this world is. Schrodinger's thought experiment is this. You've got a uh, steel box. Mm-hmm. You put a cat in the steel box. I hope the, there's litter in there. The steel box also has a Geiger counter, which mm-hmm. has some nuclear material, some radioactive material in it that's undergoing radioactive decay. Mm-hmm. Um, and within an hour, an atom of this material within the Geiger counter may or may not decay into another uh, element. Right. All right. So mm-hmm. you've got you've got uh, this this uh, this uncertainty here. You don't know whether or not that atom is going to decay within an hour. The Geiger counter is hooked up to a system where if it detects that an atom has decayed. It will uh, break some glass and some acid will be released into the box, which will kill the cat. Right. You seal the box Mm -hmm. and you wait an hour. So you don't know if the atom has decayed within that hour. Now, based upon the the traditional interpretation of quantum mechanics and this idea of superposition, you would say that the cat, before you open the box to observe it, is both alive and dead. It, it has to exist in both states at the same time. And only by opening the box and observing it will this quantum state collapse. It'll decohere and you will see definitively whether the cat is alive or dead. Now, there are a lot of philosophical uh, objections to this. Not not. I mean, it's all a thought experiment anyway, right? It's not like people are actually going to do this. But philosophical in the sense of, wait a minute. So from the cat's perspective – it's going to know whether or not it was dead. Well, if it's dead, it doesn't know anything. If it's alive, then it knows it didn't die. So well, it's got eight more. <laughs> the point being that how can you say it is both alive or dead because it's going to have no memory of such of being in such a state? Uh, others have said that uh, another objection is that well, we talk about measuring a system and that's what causes it to collapse. Mm-hmm. Some people would argue that. It, that opening up the box isn't necessary for that system to be measured. The Geiger counter inside the system is already a measuring device and is measuring part of that system. And just by measuring part of the system, it decoheres and becomes a classical system. Right. So that the cat, the cat's uh, life or death is not, it's never a superposition thing in the first place. But this is one of those thought experiments that is meant to kind of make people think about this and try and figure out, all right, well, how do we resolve this problem of our description of how the universe works? Mm -hmm. And we don't have all the answers yet. There are a lot of different interpretations to quantum mechanics, and they some of them are fairly contradictory to one another. And you've got adherence to multiple different uh, uh, approaches. And we don't have the full solution yet. No. This finally brings us to quantum computers. Okay. So here's another crazy thing about innovation. Sometimes we find out that something really cool happens when we do a certain action and we don't really know the mechanism behind it, but we go ahead and build stuff anyway. <laughs> yeah. 
a lot of <laughs> sometimes great things happen because of this. Sometimes bombs happen because of this. But uh, quantum computers it almost fits into that realm because we don't have, like I said, a full understanding of quantum mechanics. But the idea behind the quantum computer is that uh, you you create some sort of system that uses subatomic particles that have a particular feature. Like I was talking with the electron spin. That could be an example. Mm-hmm. It's not the only one, but it is an example of this. And you know that because of superposition, the electron's spin is all every every type of spin that it can be. Right. Well, if you translate this into the classical computer system, which relies on bits, and if you've listened to our Logic Gates episode, we talked a lot about this, there are two states a bit can be in. Yep. Zero. On or off. On or off. One zero or zero. Or one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or one or zero. Yes, exactly, because you said on or off. I was going to confuse everybody. Yes, or true or false. That would be the other way of looking at it. Right. It can't be both true and false. Right. Right. So, yeah, an individual bit is either going to be true or false, one or zero, on or off. In a classical computer. Classical computer. Now, quantum computers use something called qubits. They're also great for measuring an arc. They, Actually, no, a qubit they in are that also, size is a C-U-B-I-T. Yeah. The qubit talking. in a quantum bit is a Q-U-B-I-T. Which is a little orange guy who hops up and down pyramids. Uh, no, wait, that's Qbert. So qubit is a, uh, is, a, is the fundamental element of information within a quantum computer system. And unlike a regular classical computer bit, a qubit is able to be a zero or a one or any value of zero or one. Or all of them. Or all of the values of zero or one. Yeah. It, yeah that's it, not confusing in the least. It exists in superposition. Yes. And so if you have two qubits together, then you've got all the different combinations of zero and one that two bits would have. Uh, three qubits, you've got all the different combinations of zero and one that three bits would have. So exponentially, it becomes a more powerful computer for certain computing problems. Mm-hmm. Uh, Shaving a haircut. Two, two bits. bits. Yeah. So you, you keep on adding more and more qubits. You've just created a, an incredibly powerful theoretical computer. And there have been some, some advances in creating computers that use qubit technology. Uh, although we still have a lot of ground to cover in order to really make one that is, um, that is practical. Yes. As a matter of fact, you listed some of those, mm-hmm. I believe. Did I? In an article. I might have. There, well, there is a list in the article, yeah, How, How Quantum, Quantum Computers, Computers Work, on yeah. the website. Kevin Bonsire and I both worked on this article. Um, yeah. And it's, uh, yeah, it's, it, there have been several. The first being back in uh, 1998, where uh, MIT researchers uh, and uh, Los Alamos researchers uh, were able to create a single qubit across Three nuclear spins in a molecule of, uh, or in in molecules, I should say, of a liquid solution of uh, of alanine, which is an amino acid. Yeah. Now this is what I was talking about before. We're not using the, tra- the traditional materials, the silicon and metals, right, that we use to manipulate information in a classical computer. This this kind of computer is going to require a brand new style of physical architecture. 
Yes, and remember when I mentioned about uh, superposition and entanglement and decoherence, yes. that's the reason why you have to be able to isolate the actual computing element from the system it's in because if mm-hmm. it comes into contact with the system it's in, uh, you you have that problem of decoherence and quantum collapse. Mm-hmm. Uh, or you have a problem of entanglement where the system is getting entangled with the actual environment it's in and it's no longer able to do what you need it to do. Uh, these are real problems and it's it's there's no easy way to describe the solution to it. And there are a lot of different approaches that uh, that scientists are, are taking to try and create quantum computers, including uh, – Creating quantum computers that operate at a temperature close to absolute zero. Yes. Which is very, very cold. Absolute zero, by the way, in case you do not know, that is the point where you have no molecular movement whatsoever. Yes. Uh, and even deep space usually be, is a few, uh, Kelvin over absolute zero because it's, it's not easy to create a system where every single molecule in that system is, is completely motionless. Yeah, that's that's one of the troubles here is that this is not something that's easy to achieve. No, or cheap. It's really expensive. Well, yeah, that too. Uh, so what kind of problems could a quantum computer solve? Let's say that we've created a quantum computer and it exists with these qubits that can have any sort of value of zero or one or all of those values all at the same time. Mm-hmm. What would you use that for? Well, you wouldn't use it to play Doom. No. One of the advantages of quantum computers is that the superposition of the qubits would theoretically, assuming that, you know, we get to the point where we can have a, a fully operational, um, Death Star? Yes. Okay. Uh, a fully operational quantum computer. You, you could theoretically, now we talk about parallel processors before. Yes. We're talking infinite parallelism. Yeah. Um, which means that you could crunch a massive amount of data in no time flat. Yeah. The thing is, you're right. You could use it for something like Doom, but that would be like trying to cut open a grape with a chainsaw. Well, you might as well just use a regular computer because it's not going to do that. It's not going to, it's not good for doing um, simple computing problems. It's not going to do those any faster than a classical computer. Not really. It's it's meant for doing very specific types of computer problems. For example, factoring large prime numbers. Sure. Which is the basis of a lot of cryptography out there. Not all cryptography, but a lot of it. So when you encrypt files, uh, one of the methods of encryption involves taking a large prime number and when I say large, I'm talking hundreds of digits long. Mm-hmm. All right, you take this incredibly long prime number. Then you take another prime number of approximately the same number of digits, but a mm-hmm. different one. Okay. So you've got two different really, really, really large prime numbers. You multiply the two together. You get a product. Yes. You give that product to someone else. Now, if they have one of those two large prime numbers, they've got the key to figuring out the other large prime number. Uh-huh. And then you can use that to encrypt information. But if they do not have the key, if they do not have one of those two large prime numbers, they have to figure out, all right, what two prime numbers were multiplied to create this product. Mm-hmm. And when you're talking about a number that large, breaking that down, breaking that encryption can take years or centuries with a classical computer because the classical computer, what it's going to do is it's going to start finding the factors for that particular product 
And then it has to determine which ones are prime numbers and which ones aren't. Mm-hmm. So it might start with, all right, is it divisible by two? Yes. So is the other number a prime number? No. All right. Is it divisible by three? Yes. All right. Is the other number a prime number? No. All right. Is it divisible by four? Wait, that doesn't matter because four is not a prime number. Is it? <laughs> so, I mean, no, really. That's no, what, it would have to figure that that's out. That's what the classical computer would have to do. It goes bit by bit by bit. Now, I was just imagining the computer arguing, no, you idiot. Yeah. <laughs> oh, dang I it. I should have thought of that. I thought I had it. And then it turns out four is not a prime number. Oh, sorry. I see these things in my, numbers. I see this in my head. So, yeah. so anyway, yes. So yeah. So at any rate, it, it, yeah, it has to go through the entire series. Right. And, and if you're talking about parallel program or parallel computing, uh, if you have a computer that has a multi-core processor, well, each core of that processor may be able to work on a part of a problem similar to this and thus solve it in less time. But when we're talking about these, large prime numbers in this encryption technique, even a multi-core processor would take centuries to solve it. It's not it's not fast enough to really reduce that time to a practical limit. Yeah, a lot of our, our computers today use quad-core processors. Right. And that's great for doing all kinds of everyday stuff. But working on a problem of that magnitude still. Just doesn't, yeah. And even, it would take a long, it's still going to take a long time. We're going to get to, I'm sure, eight and 16 core processors, but right. still. And even if you create a grid computing network yes. where you have uh, you are, you are uh, leveraging the processing power of multiple computers, each computer with multiple processors. Even then, it's taking, it's going to take ages to solve this problem. But using a quantum computer with enough qubits, where, where it has enough qubits for all the different inputs, um, it can then run this sort of problem where, uh, since all the qubits are, are in superposition, uh, and it can run all the, all the different potential solutions in parallel and come back with a solution in seconds where it might take centuries for a classical computer system. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are a few problems with this. <laughs> the first being that um, as soon as you observe the system, you have broken down that – you it, it decoheres and, you be, and it becomes a classical computer. Mm-hmm. So you've just turned your quantum computer into a classical computer and this is not reversible. Oops. Uh, also, the other problem being that – Darn it. The solutions that a quantum computer represents are uh, given in terms of probability, mm-hmm. not in terms of certainty. So in other words, you're going to receive a uh, series of solutions and you'll essentially know which one it has the most probability of being the correct solution. But it may take multiple calculations to uh, – to make that probability feel like that like that's the answer you want to go with mm-hmm. um and and even so there's still some problems that a quantum computer just may or may not be good at solving and there's added complexity here if you remember back to our logic gates uh-huh. episode just a, a few weeks ago we were talking about certain how, how logic in classical computers flows in a certain direction and there are some logical operations that cannot be reversed. Uh here here's here's part of the problem. In quantum computers all operations have to be reversed. I mean, they have to be reversible. Mm-hmm. So some of the logical operations used in classical computing just don't operate the same way with quantum logic. And in addition to this, the superposition of the qubits also requires a different style of programming 
you have to be able to write programs in a completely different way. Yeah, quantum algorithms. Using quantum algorithms. And that means, again, you can't play Doom on it. Right. So... Which this you know is, is a huge bummer to big big Doom fans. Yeah, well, no, the th- but if you if you back off of this, we're looking at the big picture here, and not you know the quantum picture. Quantum computers, since since they use such a different way of computing, and it's a different physical architecture, it's a different uh, intellectual architecture and programming. That means you have to completely reinvent the way you compute. Mm-hmm. And it's not an inexpensive way to re-engineer the computer either. So although people are building quantum computers, it is unlikely that we're going to see them on our desktops. Right. And our laptops and on our cell phones. It may even be years before we see one that is truly capable of of doing the things that we suspect quantum computers are capable of doing. Um, And and. The kinds of problems that quantum computers can tackle are generally called BQP problems, uh-huh. which stands for Bounded Error Quantum Polynomial Time Problems. I knew that. Yeah. Uh, and so they – that's those are the ones that – those are the type of problems that quantum computers we think would be ideal for solving. But, of course, not all problems fall into that category. Uh, there's another kind of problem – that uh, may or may not be at all connected to BQP problems uh, called NP-complete problems. And I'm not going to get into too much detail here because we're going to have to really dive into complex computer science in order to explain it. But, right. um, but in general, there some people have proposed that quantum computers could possibly solve NP-complete problems. And there are other people who completely disagree and say, no, NP-complete problems fall outside the realm of what a quantum computer could uh, could attack. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll, I'll just give you an example of an NP-complete problem. And again, this is just an example, not a uh, – uh, this isn't like the end-all, be-all. Okay. But it's uh, This is called an – this is an NP-hard problem, uh, the traveling salesman problem. Mm-hmm. Have you heard about this one? It's, well, I've had a problem with some traveling salesmen before. <laughs> well, this is a little bit different than that. Um, oh. The, so, the, so you've heard about that. I guess everybody read about that in the papers. Well, you know, you, eventually you're going to, if you listen hard enough. I just don't um, tamper with my ankle bracelet and everything's okay. Now, really, I should say that the, this is an NP hard problem, mm-hmm. uh, not necessarily an NP complete problem, because I want to say that before we have all our math mathematicians write in. But I want to, you know, again, this is one of those things where we know a lot, but we don't know all the intricacies, all the connections between these types of math problems to be able to say definitively what is and is not solvable by a quantum computer. Mm -hmm. But it's a – the traveling salesman problem is sort of an optimization problem. Okay. All right. So we say that you are a traveling salesman. Okay. You have a list of cities that you need to visit on your route to, to make sales. Okay. And it's your job to try and determine the fastest or the shortest route to take where you don't uh, retrace your steps at all among those those cities. Okay. And then every time you add another city to that list, you have just made the problem much more complex. And it's determining, all right, well, there are n number of possible routes for me to take and only one of them is going to result in the shortest uh, distance between two spaces but then you add another city all right well now it's n plus 
one and n plus two and n plus three. And that's the sort of problem that could maybe be solved by a quantum computer. It's, it's hard to determine. I mean, it's again, whether or not it falls into that realm of BQP. Uh, but that's sort of the, that's an example of a problem that may not be solvable by quantum computers. We've seen quantum computers actually tackle problems like Sudoku puzzles. Mm-hmm. So there are some, uh, of these sort of parallel problems that we know quantum computers could tackle. We just don't know the full extent of it. Mm-hmm. It's complicated, man. <laughs> well, it is interesting to think that they have, uh, they have been able to build some quantum computers, even to the point where they're, they're operating on a qubyte, which is eight qubits. Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm fascinated by this, but, uh, it, it is, pretty amazing stuff. I mean, it's it's really not simple. Even for uh, maybe even probably because I am so immersed in the world of classical computing. Yeah. You know, I've done programming and Well, and we're also some just immersed things. in the classical world, period. Yeah. Yeah. And to think of, of uh, it's hard for me to imagine something existing in more than one state at the same time. So Me too. Um, yeah, same here. I and- I I was going to say in doing my I'm sorry to interrupt. No, no, please go I was ahead. In doing my research, I, I read an article called "An Introduction to Quantum Computing for Non-Physicists" by uh, Eleanor Riefel and Wolfgang Pollock. Um, I beg to differ with the non-physicist part, <laughs> but it, it still was it still was a good read, and they broke down a lot of things. But they they really got into it, and I would uh, suggest that if you're really interested in reading that, in addition to the article on HowStuffWorks.com called yeah. "How Quantum Computers Work," and we have other interesting quantum. Uh, articles yeah. on the site. The big one being the one that the one that's a favorite of oh, our yeah. general manager is quantum suicide. Yeah, I, yeah. I don't know how many times has Connell mentioned quantum suicide. I don't know, but it's well, it's a favorite of a lot of our fans too. It's, it's indicative of, of a it's indicative of a deeper psychological issue, I think. <laughs> and that that's... concludes this final episode <laughs> of tech stuff. Oh. I don't know. Does Connell still listen? I don't know. Hey, Connell. Uh, so anyway, guys, uh, that wraps up our discussion of quantum computers. And, and again, uh, the, the applications for this may be a complete revolution of how we do cryptography, mm-hmm. for example, because if quantum computers are capable of breaking down those those um, those large factor numbers, then clearly that would no longer be a safe way to encrypt information. And again, it's not the only way to encrypt information. It would just mean that we'd have to move away from that and adopt something else that quantum computers might not be so good at doing. Um, Calling Miss Nomial, Miss Polly Nomial. Nice. And on that theorem, we are going to conclude this episode. If you guys want us to tackle a subject, maybe something that's, you know, less fuzzy and scary and spooky, or Einstein would call it spooky. He called it spooky action. That was the whole entanglement thing. Um, I like Einstein. Einstein was pretty awesome. Yeah, if you guys want us to tackle uh, a a similar subject, or there's just something totally different you think that we should talk about, let us know. Drop us an email. Our address is techstuff at howstuffworks.com, or let us know on Facebook or Twitter. That handle there is TechStuff, H-S-W. Chris and I will talk to you again really soon. Be sure to check out our new video podcast, Stuff from the Future. Join HowStuffWorks staff as we explore the most promising and perplexing possibilities of tomorrow. The HowStuffWorks iPhone app has arrived. Download it today on iTunes. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. 
It's ready. Are you?